Lord, we thank you for the words of these songs that we have sung, even the prayers that we have prayed as we come to you seeing our great need and dependence upon you for your assurance of pardon, the realization that you have not only justified us, but you are sanctifying us. And you will see us through to the end, Lord, that when we are raised at last, we will be with you. And while we rehearse these great truths in song and in word and even in our own prayers and we meditate upon them in our mind, often we find our faith failing and we find that how much we long for that day when our faith will be sight. Would you help us on this pilgrim way? Would you help us on this journey as we get weary, as we find ourselves tempted by many things of this world? Lord, would you help us? We pray that, Lord, as we approach your word, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us to be expository listeners to your word, that we would uh, see how it applies to our heart. And God, that you would take away any distractions from our minds. Father, we don't just lift up ourselves. We lift up other churches to you. We thank you for your work in them, even in this community. We lift up Bristol Baptist Church, Lord, that you would be with them this morning as they gather together to worship you. Would you make yourself known amongst them, O oh God, that your word would be preached and applied. Lord, that you would sanctify your people in that church. And Father, that you would continue uh, the work that you have begun. And Lord, we thank you for what you are doing and will continue to do. Lord, we lift up other churches in the Reformed Baptist Network that we are in. We lift up Cornerstone Bible Church, Lord, in Ridgecrest, California this morning, that you'd be with them. Lord, as they seek to minister to their community and to be faithful in your word and with your gospel. Lord, that you would add many to them as many come to know you. And Lord, as they're sent out, Lord, to share your gospel that you would give the elders strength there and wisdom in leading, that you would be glorified in their midst this morning, Lord, as they meet uh, in a little while. Father, we lift up your persecuted church in many places around the world. And um, Lord, we lift up the church specifically in Turkmenistan this morning, Lord, that you would be with the saints there as they uh, are living in a hostile environment to your uh, from, from your gospel, that uh, they are uh, persecuted because of it. And Lord, I pray that you would help them to stand strong. Lord, for those who are in prison, you tell us to pray for them as if we're in chains with them. So Lord, that just puts our very hearts in the place uh, where our brothers and sisters are sometimes laying down their lives for the sake of the gospel. While we find little persecution in this neck of the woods, we ask that you would give us strength to pray for our brethren. Uh, Lord, that may not be forever, and so we don't take that for granted, but we ask that you'd forgive us for, for failing to, to pray for the persecuted church. And so we lift them to you, Lord. Draw them, draw them close to you and help those that are um, headed towards death, Lord, that they would stand strong until the end, and that they, even with their shed blood, would be, bring much glory uh, to you. Father, we pray for unreached people around the world. We um, lift up the Karabayu people and the Makusa people of the Colombian jungle in South America, that, Lord, you would bring um, 
translators to them, that, Lord, you would send missionaries to them, that you would redeem some from those tribes that have never heard your word. Uh, they don't even have audio recordings or, or even any kind of gospel presentation in their language. And, Lord, would you uh, just bring them to faith in Christ? Would you send those that will preach the word, and how can they go unless they're sent? So raise them up, O oh God. And we know that that might not be from this church, but Lord, we pray corporally with the body of Christ around the world that you would lay um, these people groups on our hearts and minds to not just be thinking about them, but praying for them and ready to send as you see fit and as you provide. Father, we lift up our world in, in various places, the troubled spots around the world. Of course, we think of the war in Ukraine and troubled places in Africa like Sudan and Ethiopia where many are starving. Lord, we pray for the refugees in many places that are uh, displaced due to war or natural disasters. Lord, we pray uh, for our military, those that are um, away from home, that you would give them strength in, in fighting um, and uh, seeking to defend our country. Lord, that the believers that are amongst them, Lord, that you give wisdom to chaplains and uh, minister the gospel to them while they're away. Father, we pray for those who are grieving. We we think of the, the Wyatt family, Lord, after Ronnie passed last week. Uh, we pray for Carla and the family. Uh, many of us know that family, Lord, and we just lift them to you as they grieve, um, Lord, that you would be with them. Father, we pray for those grieving in uh, on the island of Maui uh, from that Lahaina fire and how they are still displaced from loved ones, um, but many have, have perished, Lord, and we pray that you would use that awful tragedy, Lord, to draw many to yourself, to remind them that uh, while this fire was uh, indeed horrific, that the fires of your judgment are eternal, and Lord, that uh, you would use this to cause many to come to repentance and faith. Father, that you would heal those that have lost loved ones, and Father, that you would uh, comfort those who are sorrowful. Father, we lift up um, other places like California that received flooding, um, the last week or so, the fires in Canada and other places, Lord, that you would um, make your will known through these disasters, but Lord, that you would draw many to yourself. Father, we pray for uh, Sarah uh, Furches, Lord, who's with child, that you would be with her, and Lord, that you would continue to grow this, this baby in her womb, that there would be health and there would be um, a future smooth delivery, Lord. We thank you for children, Lord, and blessing this congregation with children and blessing the womb. Um, Lord, you are kind, and so we uh, lift these to you, Father. Father, we pray for healing for many. Uh, we continue to lift up Dean Mundy to you, Lord, as he uh, recovers from Bell's palsy, that you would make that a speedy recovery. Um, over the last few months, it's been uh, painstaking, so I pray that you would heal him, Lord, and draw him to yourself. Father, we pray for John Cordy, uh, missionaries with RBNet down in um, uh, Arizona with the Tona Odom tribe, Lord, that you would strengthen John, Lord, in his uh, treatments for cancer, for esophageal cancer, Lord, that you would spare his life if you would, uh, that he might go to the field once again and proclaim your glories to a very needy people, that you would raise up and save many from that tribe. Father, we pray for Christina Graybeal as well, Lord, as she continues to receive treatments for her cancer, that you would give her grace, Lord, in the midst of that treatment. Speak to her 
uh, in, in various ways, Lord, as she goes through this season. And be with Paul, Lord, as he leads her and, and cares for her and washes her with the word and prays over her, Lord, that you would uh, make this uh, a time where you grow their faith as well. Father, for Kitty, thank you for uh, news that she won't need surgery after all and just continue praying for her healing of her shoulder and her clavicle, Lord, that she might not be restricted in movement, Lord, that we just lift her to you. We lift Dan and Star to you, Lord, as they're in Honduras visiting their daughter and the adopted grandchildren down there, Lord, uh, give them grace as they spend uh, a little more time with them. Give them travel mercies as they come back to us. Give them grace, we pray. We lift up Christ alone. We pray that you would give um, uh, Pastor Tim Bowington just strength as he preaches this morning. We thank you for fruit of a, uh, a profession of faith this week, of a, an older woman who's come to faith in Christ. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the outreach they were able to do last week and many uh, children hearing the gospel and families receiving much-needed school supplies. We pray that you would bring fruit from these uh, endeavors, Lord, that you might be glorified. Father, we thank you for the Garretts being with us, and we look forward to spending time with them this evening and hearing of their work down in, uh, in, in Chad, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing in them and through them. We thank you for uh, sustaining them and providing uh, this time of of uh, just rest and preparation for the next season. We thank you for this new child, Lord, that you have blessed their family with. We pray for strength uh, for the whole family, Lord, as they have a few weeks to go here as you um, do your uh, divine timeline in their lives and they seek to be obedient to you. Uh, bless them, we pray. Father, we continue to ask that you would raise up leaders, Lord, to serve not just here but in various places that need pastors. Father, we, uh, we need your help, and we ask uh, that you would do that, and we wait expectantly upon you. Now, as we turn to your word, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to not just hear, but be doers of your word, that you want to be glorified just in the proclamation of your word, but our obedience to it as you apply it in your grace by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. I trust that your summer is approaching a landing well, and uh, it's, uh, these have been the hottest days of summer uh, this last week, and so I, I trust that you're, you're doing well. I want to address a few of the children's questions before we go into the Word this morning, uh, and some of these I'm still catching up on from earlier this summer. Uh, one of the questions that was asked is, what is a heifer? Going back to when Abraham sacrificed, uh, a heifer is a kind of uh, cattle, a, a kind of uh, cow that was offered as a sacrifice uh, to the Lord. And if you remember going back to our studies in um, the, uh, with Noah and the ark, there was several animals that were set aside as clean animals that ultimately would be used in the sacrificial system. And there was also unclean animals that God spared on the ark. And so that's a great question, uh, especially when you're reading something, it's great to ask questions so that you can understand God's word. And that in a miniature form is what God is using children to teach you. Write down your questions, ask them, and study the word. In, in uh, Acts, it tells us that uh, a group of people called the Bereans would uh, not just hear the word, but go back to the word to see if these things were true. And children, when you're listening like that, uh, intently, 
and you're going back and trying to understand these things, talking to your parents about these things and asking me, uh, that's how the Lord uh, provides growth for you. So thank you for asking that question. And we'll do one more. Why does God call Abram, Abraham? Why did he change his name? Well, that's excellent. We looked at that a few weeks ago. In fact, uh, one of our members pointed out to me that I did a misspeak multiple times uh, where I continued to call him Abram when his name clearly had been changed to Abraham. And the beauty of the Old Testament is often when people came to faith in Christ and ultimately were looking to God in faith, God changed their name and attached to that name had meaning. That name taught something. So Abraham means father of the many or father of future nations. And so God was going to fulfill his name. It was actually prophetic of what he was going to do when we saw his promises in chapter 12 through 15. And we're still studying because God is faithfully giving these promises even though there's elements that have not yet been answered. So that is a great question, why God changes names. In many cultures today, names are still changed when they come to faith in Christ. Uh, one of the most common ways in uh, our day is uh, mainly in Muslim families. When a Muslim comes to know Christ, their names are sometimes changed because their names actually were associated with uh, the God they used to worship, or gods in some animistic cultures. And so it's really important that name changes are, uh, are, are evidence of what God is doing in the heart. Now, we don't see that as much in the West, but God is redeeming us, amen? And he gives us a new name. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation, it says. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. So even though our name doesn't change when we come to, come to Christ, it's changed in a certain way. Um, because of what Christ has done. So children, thank you for uh, looking at those bulletins. They're a blessing to me, and thank you for taking notes, and, um, and I just thank you uh, for, for sharing. So as we now turn to God's Word, would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20? Genesis chapter 20. Hard to believe that we're just about a third of the way through the book of Genesis. Um, when we started this project... Um, we were looking down uh, a plan of five years. And I just thank the Lord for such um, goals, but also how the Lord ministers to us, how we can't plan when uh, certain things are being covered and how God uses that. It's just awesome. So would you stand with me now as we read uh, chapter 20 of the book of Genesis? This is God's word. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes. I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, 
and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all yours who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abram and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have bought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did, that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given you your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abram prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and the female slaves so that they all bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife. This ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Fear is often a negative motivator in anyone's life, let alone the life of God's people. As we continue our study in the book of Genesis, we have seen this very topic visited before. In fact, some of us may have uh, just a, a sense of amnesia, thinking, I, we've heard this passage before, have we not? In fact, it's true in the narrative of Genesis that God in his sovereign plan and in the inspiration of the Spirit through the hand of Moses has recorded these things yet a second time for us as far as the struggle of Abraham and believing the promises of God. In chapter 13, we saw Abraham and Sarah going to Egypt and the same kind of situation happening. And we ask, why in the world would Abraham, knowing what God was going to do, would see fit to have to lie in this sense? These two events, probably separated by uh, almost two decades, shows that this was a lifetime struggle for Abraham. We see in the sense this flesh versus the spirit type struggle in Abraham's walk with the Lord. While we see mountaintop uh, acts of faith which are yet to come in Genesis, like the sacrificing of Isaac, the promised one that we're going to see in chapter 21 is given to them finally, or the 
uh, bold faith that he left as God called him to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go to a place he did not know. In many ways, Abraham's life was a lonely life, even though he was surrounded by many people, many servants, and great riches. Oftentimes, we feel in our walk of faith that God, while we know his promises, seems so afar off, or sometimes we even doubt whether he is near. And so here in this passage, we see Abram coming before Abimelech. And we see in this context that some time has probably passed between what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah and the events of chapter 19 of Lot and his daughters. And so by the inspiration of the Spirit, God brings back to focus this plan of redemption here in verse 20, dealing with Abraham and Sarah. I want to sum up this whole passage in really just two points. We see the fear of Abraham. We see that he's motivated in this way later in the passage, but ultimately we're going to look that he has fear in multiple areas. Secondly, we want to look at ultimately the faithfulness of God throughout this passage, even to Abimelech, who doesn't seem to even be a God-fearer at the beginning. In fact, Abraham thought that there was no fear of God in this place. Abimelech was most likely a a foreign king that we don't know much about before or after, even though we see him dealing with Abraham in the text of Genesis. So we'll see God's faithfulness and how he really is glorified amongst all parties involved as we bring a close to this. So notice, first of all, that the context of this situation is that he's journeying towards the territory of the Negev. Now, that's geography, and uh, some of you may have a, a, a map in the back of your Bible. It's helpful to have uh, some knowledge of biblical places. It helps you to understand what he's doing and why. Now, the scriptures don't tell us right here why he journeyed, but there probably was some uh, reason for that. We know he had large flocks. We know that uh, it was a desert land amidst even uh, nearby where Sodom and Gomorrah had been destroyed, the sulfur that had fallen from heaven most likely had uh, tainted the land. Uh, there could have been an awful smell, uh, some commentators say, over many decades after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. So you can imagine the context of living. He's still sojourning, which is ultimately would be the promised land. This would be the southern part of Judah eventually in years to come. But he journeys, it says, to this territory. But I don't think we should miss this. That from the very beginning when God called him to come out and follow him, it was a journey there's a way that God's people are called to continue on in the same way that we saw with Lot. He wanted to make his home in Sodom, and God said no. God called him out, and as he was delivered, as the fires of Sodom were scorching his back, and he was barely saved, as we saw in chapter 19, and the resulting consequences that followed, oftentimes, church, we are tied to this world. And we saw that in Lot's wife, as Jesus himself in his teaching told us to remember Lot's wife. More than likely, she was looking back to a life that she was leaving behind, perhaps the material items she was leaving behind, and maybe even people. 
that were completely wicked and worthy of judgment. So often when God calls us to follow him, we leave behind people and possessions and powers and comforts and all the things that we would be tempted to grasp onto and God in his kindness pries our fingers off the things that we are holding on to that we would grasp something far more glorious, something far more beautiful, something far more glorious than we could ever imagine. And that is Christ himself. In fact, Hebrews tells us that uh, Abram was looking for a land or for a city rather that would, was yet to come, that he himself was not able to grasp in his lifetime. And so, church, sometimes living by faith means not just waiting for that expectantly ourselves, but believing God will bring fruit from our labors even after we are in the grave. That, my friends, takes great faith. That, my friends, is what God is encouraging us with to continue the journey to continue following after him, that we are mere sojourners on the earth, and yet he is going to deliver us home one day. And so right here in the context of his journey, notice he lived between Kadesh and Shur, which is to the south, and he sojourned in Gerar. So there's movement going on. There's a, a continual movement in uh, Abraham's journeys, more than likely the flocks were kind of leading the way, and when there wasn't food, they would go to the next place. And notice Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, brings us to verse 2 and returns us back to this focus of where Abraham has acted in the past. And it says, Abram said of his wife, or Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So he's dwelling in this land. He's under a larger authority of this area, and this King Abimelech, by the very Hebrew here, uh, my father is king, um, that he was reigning over a multi-generational reign over this part of the land, and it is a land that ultimately that God was going to give Abraham as far as the promises of where the territories and the boundaries would be of the promised land um, as they entered it under Joshua's conquering leadership. So in the midst of this, we're brought to the very fact that Abraham has a need to say that she is his sister. Now, if you look back to chapter 13, we know when he went into Egypt, he did this, and he did this for fear of very similar reasons, that he would be killed for his wife's sake, that she could be taken and, um, and, and brought into the house of Pharaoh. Secondly, there's probably a reason that Abraham is fearful because of the very promises themselves. He realized that God himself was going to bring multiple times, God has corrected him, that he was going to bring up seed through Sarah. And there's a sense in his human way wanting to prevent anything happening to Sarah not just because she's his wife, but because of the future seed. But he also doubted the very process of how God would do that, even though God has corrected him multiple times. Do you find a friend in Abraham? Do you see yourself here in the text? How often does God continue to teach us something until we learn it? Sometimes it takes a lifetime 
that we believe the promises, and we know that Abraham did because he's acting according to them, but we see these issues of his failure of faith even connected to the promise of the future seed. Think with me again, not just Egypt. Think Hagar. Think about all these ways that they were seeking to do God's will in their way. They were trying to help God out, and every time we try to help God out, what happens? We result the consequences of our own fleshly deeds. And how often and how multiple are the applications here? Even here in the text, I find great resounding truths even from the the context of church ministry. How often do we believe that God is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and we think we must do something more than just proclaim the word? Surely we should try to make a place where people feel comfortable so that sinners can hear the word. There's, there's compromise and there's temptation to confuse the gospel with, with just being friendly to the world. And yet God reminds us, trust me, obey me, and look what I will do. And in that way, God is glorified in all of our fleshly uh, doings are, uh, fall to the ground and are forgotten, but God's word remains. And that's the beauty of Hebrews, even in Hebrews 12. If you read through that hall of faith, not one fleshly act, not one faithless act is mentioned. Why? Because we just see the washing of all these saints by Christ and that their faith-filled decisions are exemplified and honored. Why? Because Christ has saved them. And so here in this context, we see that even Sarah was fearful and went along with this plan. We see no sense of a conversation that, no, Abraham, let's just trust the Lord in this. He's got us. And if he's got a promised seed coming, then we can hilariously trust him even in the midst of great evil. But that's not the trajectory of this passage. So Abraham is fearful. And so he's telling each of these people that she is my sister. And so Abimelech goes along with it. Now, culturally, you're probably wondering, why is it that a man is separated from his sister every time this happens? Well, there's uh, lots of questions here, and I think to help us to understand is some cultural aspects. But, uh, but Abimelech's, I mean, um, Abimelech, yes, and Pharaoh in the context of Genesis did this same thing because she was called a sister. In other words, there's a respect for marriage even in the ancient world where uh, a man would not, be, uh, would not touch another man's wife because there was great consequences to do so. Even in the animistic religions of the past, they saw that such sin would bring judgment. And so there was a great respect for that. But Abraham did have a fear that he would be killed and his wife taken from him. You might even be thinking, why in the world would Abimelech be uh, taking uh, this uh, man's wife, even in her old age? We know from the context of Scripture that she is in her 90s at this point. Women, be encouraged there. Maybe your prettiest days are ahead. But I want us to see here that there's, we sometimes are attributing this generation and our understanding of age uh, and beauty uh, maybe in, in, in putting this into the text. They lived longer then, and perhaps they were able to um, 
uh, that, that she, was, she was beautiful in that sense. But I think the text actually points to that Sarah's, uh, just the way that she presented herself became so attractive. In fact, how she humbled herself or was reverent. We know in various places, if you do a character study of Sarah's life in a larger format, that she was a great, respectful wife, even calling Abraham Lord, lowercase l. It was a sign of respect and that she was very obedient and probably a lovely wife, probably a lovely personality. And so she was attractive in this way. But either way, in the context of God's sovereign plan in both Abraham's life and Sarah's life, but also in Abimelech's life, let alone the people surrounding them, she goes to be with Abimelech. Now, we don't know how much time uh, took place, but we see here that they made this decision, not in faith, but ultimately in fear. And so we see in verse 3, the great transition transition word but but God came to Abimelech and notice this is before the scriptures were given there was revelation in dreams and vision often but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him these words behold you are a dead man because of the woman that you have taken for she is a man's wife talk about a revelation Talk about a bad dream. Talk about great revelation from God. And the words that come out of this dream are that you are a dead man. Well, in an immediate sense, we know that Abimelech, without the saving grace of God, will be under much more um, torment if he would not repent. But in a smaller form here, we see that he's a dead man because he's being accused of being so close to uh, accomplishing a, a great sin in God's sight. But isn't this true of all of us? That even unwittingly, we sometimes forget that we are depraved and that we are fallen and that we are dead people. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it this way, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Church, we don't need a life vest. We need to be raised to life. We are dead, and we are as good as dead unless we repent. And so notice God's amazing kindness here to Abimelech, a foreign king, one that was outside of the promise that we see here in the chapters of Genesis. And so he says, because you have this, there's great judgment on you. And now Abimelech had not approached her. So that's a, a fact that the scriptures give us to remind us that this is more of a warning, but also a judgment that is coming his direction unless he makes things right. And so he says uh, to the Lord in the end of verse 4, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Wow. Now, in one sense, he's certainly innocent in this immediate context. But isn't it interesting that when we consider the, uh, the larger picture of God's judgment, that none of us are innocent. We deserve much worse. In fact, in context, it's very possible that the surrounding people had heard of God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And there was a fear amongst the people. 
Now, we trust that perhaps that this has had an effect in a moral way around surrounding people groups. Now, we don't have that in the text of Scripture, but it's very interesting in the context of Abimelech that he had no intentions this way in harming Sarah, which comes out in this conversation, in this dream with God himself. And so he says, are you going to kill an innocent people? Isn't this the same thing that Abraham asked about Sodom and Gomorrah? And he asked if God would spare if there was righteous, and God said he would. And the only ones that made it out were Lot and his daughters. And isn't it interesting in the context of such things that God's grace and God's judgment are again before us? As Abram asked in the previous passage, is God of all the earth, the judge of all the earth, will he not do what is right? And so in verse 5, he did not himself, he, he's now talking about the excuses that he has, which are very clear that God ultimately accepts. And what is it? Well, he says, well, Abraham himself said that she is my sister. And she herself said he is my brother. So uh, Sarah's complicit in this plan. And notice he says there, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. In other words, my actions in taking Sarah into my household or into his courts is not uh, at any way a motive of ill will towards Abraham or Sarah. He's simply going based on the facts that there is a half-truth at best, a lie at worst that has caused him to act this way. Don't we all do that when we have a lack of information? Have you ever had a misunderstanding that, that, that uh, caused a reaction that you are now embarrassed of? That you just assume that someone is going crazy? Many years ago, by way of illustration, I was heading down 221, and this was before it was a four-lane, it was a two-lane, and I'm coming down 221 past Westwood Elementary, and I see this car rolling out right in front of me. And if I didn't slam on my brakes, I would have hit this car. And as I'm coming closer to this car, I realize there's no driver in the car. And I put on my brakes and I turn off to Clarence Lyle Road where I see a woman laying in the road, which I presumed was the driver of that car. And so had young children with me. I told them to stay in the car. I immediately slammed on the brakes, ran across the uh, road, uh, stopped the vehicle that was rolling without a driver, uh, pulled it back to the side of the road, and then went to assist the woman to ask, what in the world has happened? Because she seemed to be okay. She had reached down to gr grab something that she had dropped out of the window, and she had fallen out of her car, and the car walked uh, or, or continued to roll without her in it. She, seeing me coming, did not uh, pause to uh, go after her car because she didn't want to be hit. In the midst of that moment, I was angry that somebody was pulling out in front of me, but with further investigation, I realized there was something else at play. But often, don't we have even anger or even uh, un, um, unintended consequences for a, a misunderstanding of a given situation? And so, in this situation, King Abimelech is saying, I'm clear here on this issue anyway. 
that I have not sought to do anything to this man's wife. And he had not approached her, according to verse 4. And he is now asking, is God going to bring judgment upon me for something I didn't do? Guilt by association. So in verse 5, he gives his excuses. And then he now says in verse 6 that God responds to him. It says, then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart and that it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Underline that here. It should jump off the passage, uh, out of the passage to you. It's amazing here that even with a foreign king, that God is really showing us how we are delivered ultimately from the sins that so easily entangle us, that God is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. Just as we sang a few moments ago, when we try to put our trust in ourselves or our performance, we will fail, our faith will fail. And even from the midst of that song, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. God is the one who is going to keep you. And if he was able to save you in the beginning, he is able to keep you to the end. Church, as we look at this journey of the Christian life, the worst in your faith walk, if you will, may be ahead. Oh, that we would learn this lesson well, that God is able to save completely. And so we see this even in the context of dealing with an unsaved king, that God has kept him from Uh, sinning against him, that God is the one who is keeping him, that God recognizes the integrity of even a sinful man's heart as far as his choices and decisions. And so it says at the end of verse 6, therefore I did not let you touch her. Praise God that he is able to keep us And even in this text, while we see that it's Abimelech, God corrects Abimelech and says, yes, indeed, it was the integrity of your heart, but I have done this. I have been the one that is keeping you. And church, here is a lesson for all of us that we can be encouraged when we find ourselves worshiping, when we find ourselves producing spiritual fruit. It should bring great humility because we know there's evidence of God's work in our lives. Also, when we find faithlessness, as we see on the other side of the coin with Abraham here, we should see that the fruit of our faithlessness is something we also have to bear, which is really uncomfortable in this passage because Abraham has found out. So that's our next look here, is seeing God's faithfulness in the midst of these fearful decisions. So it says... Verse 7, now then, return the man's wife. So there's acknowledgement of what's going on. There's a communication through this vision. And now he's saying, make this right. Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Now again, this shouldn't be confusing to you. Abraham has been seen as a prophet throughout Genesis, but in the sense of not just foretelling God's word, but fulfilling God's promises, that this is God's man, if you will. And so he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. In other words, God is working in and through Abraham. He is accomplishing this through him. But if you do not return to her, now uh, know that you shall surely die. 
Again, that same phrase, you shall surely die, is what we saw earlier in Genesis 3, that the day of you eat of that fruit, Adam and Eve, you will surely die. And you and all who are yours, sin is deadly business. If we find it, we know we are called to put it to death by faith. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, so in, look, or, or reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are called to fight our flesh in that sense as we looked at chapter 7 with uh, the youth group on Friday night. We looked at this very spiritual tension between faith and our own flesh and that we are called to uh, put to death that which is ungodly in us and we do that by faith but by the power of God's Spirit that we often find that that which we want to do that we uh, cannot do. And that which we don't want to do, that we practice, as Paul said. And so this reality of the need for salvation in that sense, in sanctification, Paul ends that passage in saying, I thank God who delivers me uh, from these things. And so here we see that this comes to pass in Abimelech's life. This was a vision. So in verse 8, notice that Abimelech has the heart of obedience. Notice it's the first thing. He rose early in the morning. He called his servants and he told them these things. That is a heart to make things right. In fact, Abimelech is displaying a, a positive look at God and his word and how we are called to obey it and put it into practice, whereas Abraham is the negative in this context. And notice that he rises up and all the men were very much afraid. Can you imagine hearing this? Uh, King had a vision last night uh, about this girl and it's, it's right and uh, there's, there's judgment coming upon us. Uh, we got to get this woman back to, um, uh, to her husband. So there's fear all through this passage, not just fear in Abraham and Sarah, but now fear upon those who had um, dealt uh, unknowingly with Sarah. Then in verse 9, then Abimelech calls Abraham, this is the moment of truth, and said to him, what have you done to us? And look at his restraint. You can imagine his anger. But notice he's questioning him. How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? It's most likely we'll see towards the end of the passage that they have given him safe haven to live with all of his servants and all of his flocks. And there's been no problem. But, but Abraham thought that he ought to lie in this way, to cover up the truth, to protect his own rear, if you will. And yet he's also protecting, thinking that he's protecting his own wife, but he's actually brought her into more trouble. And so at the end of verse 9, he says, you have done to me things that ought not to be done. Again, lying or uh, twisting the truth to protect ourselves is a, a fruit of not trusting the Lord. We are faithless in this sense, and we see Abram doing this. And so the question comes from Abimelech, this foreign king, what did you see? In other words, what is the motive for you acting like this, Abraham? And here is the truth that comes out as we observe this text. Verse 11, Abram said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. Now, even that seems to be a half-truth, but it 
is probably the truth in the sense of him not feeling comfortable in this world that he was sojourning through, realizing that he was set apart from other peoples with a promise that could not be uh, uh, hold anything against those futures of these future nations. Can you imagine living your life realizing that those people that you dwell amongst will eventually be destroyed by God? Can you imagine living in a place realizing that the promised seed is going to have eternal dividends? That's what the promise was to Abram. That there was a, a nation, a land, a blessing ahead. He knew that God was going to ultimately do these things. He didn't know how, but he knew that he was going to do that. And so he was looking upon these lands and saying, there's no fear of God in them. He just saw Sodom and Gomorrah go up in smoke. But notice he says a second motivator at the end of verse 11. They will kill me because of my wife. Well, the reality is that he didn't want to lose Sarah, but possibly not just for his own selfish purposes did he do this, but also because of, again, the promise that Sarah would bear this son. And he was worried in his own flesh in having, having um, plans like this to scheme rather than drop in his knees to prayer where God may have shown the way and brought about similar circumstances. So he tries to explain this of why he did it. Look at verse 12. He says, besides, indeed, she is my sister. So, you know, I didn't lie to you. Well, not really. He says, she is the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. So um, Abraham's father had uh, multiple wives. And so uh, Sarah was the result of one marriage and Abraham the other. So in one sense, she is a stepsister. But still, he is, uh, she is his wife. So in the, the present tense, this is a half-truth at best. And so in verse 13, he says, And when God, here's Abraham's theology, caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness that you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. And there we have it, folks. The lifetime struggle of Abraham all the way back to the beginning of his journey with God himself. That he interpreted what he was going on and how he would, they would uh, relate to foreign peoples from that point forward. If you will, this was his constant struggle of his flesh. And so he set this up as a safeguard to not just Sarah, but himself, that he would do that she would do this kindness uh, to him. Now, that should show us a couple things. Firstly, this shows that Sarah indeed was very honoring to Abraham, even when he went beyond that even when he did things that ultimately would be uh, detailed as wrong. It shows the relationship that Abraham and Sarah had, but it also shows the weakness of uh, men in this way that have the responsibility to lead and to guide and to initiate righteous living, how that has effects on other people when we make faithless decisions. And oftentimes, us dads, us husbands, seek to blame our wives when we make faithless decisions and how we ought to be corrected and humbled in that way for such godly wives to lead us and help us and encourage us. But we also ought to humble ourselves in such ways. So he explains these truths 
uh, or half-truths rather, uh, of what is going on. And then in verse 14, notice how these things conclude and how God ultimately shows his faithfulness to all parties involved. Verse 14, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Now, there's a sense that there's restoration happening here, but it's also a gift. This guy represents God. He's a prophet. He's going to pray for us. There's much kindness that needs to be shown. I did not touch his wife. I want to make things right. And Abimelech gives all these things. It's very interesting in the context of chapter 13 that the same thing happened in Egypt. It's very interesting that some or not a big portion of Abram's wealth actually came from Egypt and from Abimelech. And so these, these very unfortunate fleshly things that Abraham can actually look at what he owns and it came from such dishonest givings. In fact, his grandchildren will have the same reputation as we get into the life of Jacob. And so it's faithlessness, but yet he is blessed by God in a providential way through Abimelech. So what about Abimelech? Well, verse 15, it says, And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Look at his graciousness, even in this misunderstanding. He says, Dwell where it pleases you. So to Sarah, so he doesn't leave her out because she was complicit in this, says, Behold, I have given your brother, <laughs> he calls him her, her brother. I don't know if that's, that's uh, uh, meant to be sarcastic or not, but he's like, fine, okay, your brother's sister. Okay, your brother, I just gave you a thousand pieces of silver. Now, by most standards, even at the Old Testament times, this was a lot of money. It is a sign, so he uses this money as a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. In other words, he is forgiving them for what they have done to their people. And before everyone, you are vindicated. So there must have been multiple times that Sarah had sworn that she was Abram's sister and this misled people. But he is showing signs of restoration and reconciliation. The fact that he's given them land, he doesn't kick them out of the land, as we saw with Egypt, but he's actually giving them a place, that it's a, a good thing, and that he's giving them money and flocks and servants. And then finally in verse 17, we see that Abram, after all this has passed, does what God said he would do. Then Abram prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. Now, we, we know this after the fact, but one of the judgments because of Sarah was that all the wombs were closed. And that's what it says in verse 18, for the Lord had closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So this act of God is thwarted, um, not, uh, not, it was God's plan ultimately, but it wasn't thwarted in the sense of him not fulfilling it, but rather it was kept from coming towards Abimelech and his family because of Abraham's prayer. So either way, God is glorified on all ends. And another example here, as we saw in chapter 19, that God is able to recycle our human failures for his glory. And yes, even faithless decisions that are bearing fruit in our lives that we're constantly reminded of. 
And I can't think of more hopeful application to our lives and to look at this text in just a few short ways before we close in seeing how God is faithful in the midst of our failure. So consider this for a moment. Are we, like Abraham, seeking in the ways of our lives to respond to the circumstances in fear or in faith? Realizing that God is able to do the impossible even when our human logic leads us to an entirely different conclusion. Secondly, with Sarah, we see that oftentimes we are complicit in a plan that ultimately isn't being driven by faith. This oftentimes is maybe uh, under the, the undercurrent of our lives? Are you submitting to something that is ultimately a faithless direction? Whether that is in your family or whether that's in the church or whether that is in some other form or fashion in your business or in your relationships, are you living by faith? Are you trusting God to do for you what he says he will do? I can think of a few examples. When we're trying to accomplish things, we cut corners. I've known over the years many Christians struggling in the sense of their finances, and so they cut corners in their taxes or in some other way that they know they're to honor God, but they do that thinking, oh, this is the logical conclusion of what I'm supposed to do. Or to pile up debt uh, to, to try and make ends meet when you know that the numbers don't match. And instead of crying out to God, you foolishly push, a, push ahead. Perhaps in business, you're cutting the corners of what you know you ought to do, and you cannot say, like Abimelech said, that I've done this in the integrity of my heart. My books are open. Are we challenged in such ways? Consider, too, what God is doing in the midst of these things, church. God, in his providence, allowed Abram to get into this situation, again, to show him to himself how he is and how he tends to look at his own plans rather than to trust the Lord in what he was going to accomplish. This is really right in our face because when we turn the chapter here to chapter 21, this is when God brings Isaac on the scene and Sarah conceives. Isn't it interesting that often be in the great failures of our faith, that God is just about to do a mighty work in our lives. If he's testing you, he's going to see you through. He's testing you and he's reminding you of your great need because what is coming requires such uh, faithfulness and also such uh, willingness to surrender to him that he might lead us in and through the issues of our life. So when we look at this text, it should challenge us to not only see our own sin and failings, but just the reminder that God is able to keep us, that God is able to deliver us, that God indeed is faithful even in the midst of our sin and other people's sin, that God in his faithfulness is going to bless us because we know that he has a plan for his redeemed people, ultimately for his glory, but also for our good. And so when we're associated as people, that wherever we go, as 1 Corinthians says, that we are the fragrance of Christ. Church, I plead with you not to mishear this passage. That it's not just to focus on where we have failed, but ultimately to look to Christ in faith and to sacrifice that very fear on the altar of God's uh, uh, redeeming power in our lives to give us great faith 
for the future. Where does that land with you? Are you afraid, children, of a new school year? Are you afraid maybe about something that you have done that your parents don't know? Us parents, are we afraid of a new school year? Are we afraid about the future of our marriage? Are we afraid about our own sin and its consequences? Are we afraid about the future of, uh, of, of anything? Are we scared about our health? As many of you struggle with health things, are you trusting the Lord in the midst of them that he is able to keep you no matter what the doctor says? Are we able to trust him in times of great sorrow and not seeing a way out and not seeing light at the end of the tunnel? Church, I'm right there with you. I, I often fear about the future of this church in my ability to lead, in my trusting of the Lord. Can I trust him or does fear cause me to do things that I ought not to do? And so right here in the text, God is humbling us and reminding us of our great need and our great dependence upon the Lord. But the truth of this is we get to see this in living color. We not only get to see the beginning of this, but the end of this. We're going to celebrate in the next chapter that Isaac is born, this promised son. And how much more do we have the promise of Christ that has been given to us, this babe that was born of a virgin, that went to the cross for us, that died and rose again. How is it that we cannot believe him? We trust him for our eternal salvation, but we show ourselves faithlessly following him at times in our lives. And we grow weak, but the purpose of God's word is corrective, instructive, in training in righteousness that the man of God will be built up, that ultimately that God would restore us and encourage us. Oh, church, Take comfort in God's word this morning. Regardless of your performance, Christ is sufficient for you. Christ is for you. You have no condemnation hanging over your head. There is nothing to fear. And it's in the presence of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that fear dissolves like a morning mist. Will you sacrifice it to him? Will you trust him afresh, as hard as it might be, that you would allow the Lord to entrust him or trust yourself to his great care and watch him work amazing things, things, as the scriptures say, exceedingly abundantly above what we could ever ask or think. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this passage, this passage that challenges our hearts in how fear is an awful motivator. But you, and looking at your wondrous character, your holy and righteous ways, your goodness, your mercy, and even your judgment that we've seen in Genesis, you alone are a motivation and ought to be. And that produces in us a great desire to look to you in all things. And it truly is simple. It's a, a yielding to you, a believing that you are able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so the Christian life is not about performing for you, but rather surrendering, yielding to you. 
The Christian life is about you living through us, not us trying to do things for you. For as we try to do things for you, it is disgusting to you. Because only you can do it. And you want us to glory in you. Because you are our soul's treasure. You are our beautiful pearl of great price. You are the one that causes us to endure. You are the one that will receive all the glory at the end of our journey. You alone are able to keep us and get us to the promised land. Lord, help us to trust you. However you seek to apply this by your spirit into our lives, would you dissolve our fear and in place of it, put great faith for what you have for our futures and for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.